This is Chapter 4 of Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, Volume 2, Book 3, Chapter 4, All Ready to Condemn. On Tuesday, the 20th of February, while I sat at my master's work in the evening, he came in, looking sad, and said it had been decided to begin the trial at eight o'clock the next morning, and I must get ready to assist him. Of course, I had been expecting such news every day for many days, but no matter, the shock of it almost took my breath away, and set me trembling like a leaf. I suppose that without knowing it I had been half imagining that at the last moment something would happen, something that would stop this fatal trial. Maybe that Laïr would burst in at the gates with his hellions at his back. Maybe that God would have pity and stretch forth his mighty hand. But now, now there was no hope. The trial was to begin in the chapel of the fortress, and would be public. So I went sorrowing away and told Noel, so that he might be there early and secure a place. It would give him a chance to look again upon the face which we so revered, and which was so precious to us. All the way, both going and coming, I ploughed through chattering and rejoicing multitudes of English soldiery and English-hearted French citizens. There was no talk but of the coming event. Many times I heard the remark, accompanied by a pitiless laugh, "'The fat bishop has got things as he wants them at last, and says he will lead the vile witch a merry dance and a short one.' But here and there I glimpsed compassion and distress in a face, and it was not always a French one. English soldiers feared Joan, but they admired her for her great deeds and her unconquerable spirit. In the morning Manchon and I went early, yet as we approached the vast fortress we found crowds of men already there and still others gathering. The chapel was already full, and the way barred against further admissions of unofficial persons. We took our appointed places, throned on high sat the president, Cochon, bishop of Beauvais, in his grand robes, and before him in rows sat his robed court, fifty distinguished ecclesiastics, men of high degree in the church, of clear-cut intellectual faces, men of deep learning, veteran adepts in strategy and casuistry, practiced setters of traps for ignorant minds and unwary feet. When I looked around upon this army of masters of legal fence, gathered here to find just one verdict and no other, and remembered that Joan must fight for her good name and her life single-handed against them, I asked myself what chance an ignorant poor country girl of nineteen could have in such an unequal conflict, and my heart sank down low, very low. When I looked again at that obese president, puffing and wheezing there, his great belly distending and receding with each breath, and noted his three chins, fold above fold, and his knobby and knotty face, and his purple and splotchy complexion, and his repulsive cauliflower nose, and his cold and malignant eyes, a brute, every detail of him, my heart sank lower still and when I noted that all were afraid of this man, and shrank and fidgeted in their seats when his eye smote theirs, my last poor ray of hope dissolved away and wholly disappeared. There was one unoccupied seat in this place, and only one. It was over against the wall, in view of every one. It was a little wooden bench without a back, and it stood apart and solitary on a sort of dais. Tall men-at-arms in morion, breastplate, and steel gauntlets stood as stiff as their own halberts on each side of this dais, but no other creature was near by it. 
A pathetic little bench to me it was, for I knew whom it was for, and the sight of it carried my mind back to the great court at Poitiers where Joan sat upon one like it, and calmly fought her cunning fight with the astonished doctors of the church and parliament, and rose from it victorious and applauded by all, and went forth to fill the world with the glory of her name. What a dainty little figure she was, and how gentle and innocent! How winning and beautiful in the fresh bloom of her seventeen years! Those were grand days, and so recent, for she was just nineteen now, and how much she had seen since, and what wonders she had accomplished! But now, oh, all was changed now! She had been languishing in dungeons, away from light and air and the cheer of friendly faces, for nearly three-quarters of a year. She, born child of the sun, natural comrade of the birds, and of all happy free creatures. She would be weary now, and worn with this long captivity, her forces impaired, despondent, perhaps, as knowing there was no hope. Yes, all was changed." All this time there had been a muffled hum of conversation, and rustling of robes and scraping of feet on the floor, a combination of dull noises which filled all the place. Suddenly, "'Produce the accused!' It made me catch my breath. My heart began to thump like a hammer. But there was silence now, silence absolute. All those noises ceased, and it was as if they had never been, not a sound. The stillness grew oppressive. It was like a weight upon one. All faces were turned toward the door, and one could properly expect that, for most of the people there suddenly realized, no doubt, that they were about to see, in actual flesh and blood, what had been to them before only an embodied prodigy, a word, a phrase, a world-girdling name. The stillness continued. Then, far down the stone-paved corridors, one heard a vague, slow sound approaching, clank, clink, clank. Joan of Arc, deliverer of France, in chains. My head swam, all things whirled and spun about me. Ah, I was realizing, too. End of chapter 4